This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host... Jane Brown. Libby is off today. Thank you for joining me. Well, everybody is talking about Harry, Prince Harry, and his new memoir, Spare, which will be out tomorrow. But in the meantime, Harry is talking to various media outlets about his story, which he says he wants to own. And that, he says, is the main reason why he's telling what he says is the truth. But what does Harry's memoir mean for the future of the royal family, the monarchy, and the legacy of the late Queen Elizabeth? Maybe you would like to weigh in on this discussion. Numbers to call are 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We will be discussing Harry and his memoir for the next few minutes here and other topics related to Zoomers with our our Zoomer squad. Bill Van Gorder is Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer of CARP. David Kravitz is Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. And Peter Mugrich is Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Hello, everybody. Hi, Jane. Hi, everybody. Hi, Jane. I've got Bill on the phone, and David and Peter are here with me in studio. Bill, what do you make of Prince Harry's tell-all, and um, how you think it will affect the royal family? Well, you know, when when this for, for story was first uh, proposed, I thought, gee, what what do I even know about this, and do I even care? And I thought, well, maybe Fair. I'm out of the loop. <laughs> I uh, I talked with some CARP members this morning after I knew we were discussing this, and what I basically heard from them was, you know, um, people are so tired of listening to uh, the doom and gloom news that we're hearing between uh, between wars and climate and uh, financial concerns that they're looking for a soap opera. And this is a really interesting uh, uh, soap opera. Uh, they also reminded me that royalty has had relationship dramas throughout history. This isn't anything new when it comes to royal family. So it's interesting, probably more from an entertainment point of view than a real concern that this will really affect them or the uh, rest of the world. And that would seem to indicate to me, to answer your direct question, uh, that uh, I don't don't think uh, people uh, much care about the current royalty. They're going to have to learn to love the new king before this kind of thing bothers them at all. Mm. David. Well, I like, I'm glad Bill said something about history, because I think that if we're looking at this through a Zoomer lens, the generational issue here, everybody, any individual could have an opinion. I like the royal family. I don't like the royal family. But generationally, I think the Zoomers maybe have a better uh, understanding of past history and past dramas, and that the royal families of as far back as you can go, have had scandals, have had divorces, have had secret lovers, have had uh, uh, recalcitrant offspring who <laughs> embarrassed the old. I mean, one of Queen Victoria's sons was rumored to be Jack the Ripper, for heaven's sake. I mean, I mean, it's been it's it's an old movie, and and uh, Zoomers too. When we were of that uh, young and restless age, we always thought, young people always think they're the first people that ever experienced this, or that we no. No one ever saw this before. This is new. Well, it isn't new. It's been around a long time. This too shall pass. And the only difference is now fed by social media and sort of the inescapability of it all. I think it'll play itself out a little quicker maybe than it would have been in the past because people are just going to say, well, fine and move on. <laughs> Peter, I know this is a hot topic on EverythingZoomer.com, as in Zoomer magazine, so you probably know more than most of us. I I wouldn't claim to know more, but I do do sort of follow it, and I I follow the reaction from uh, readers. And and, um, a a lot of people are are sort of um, turning on Harry because he's coming off, um, you know, 
He, he signed that big contract with who did he sign it with David uh, Netflix, Netflix was it yes. and for a while they were, like they just weren't producing anything newsworthy and you know their their ratings were floundering and now he's obviously stepped it up and he, and he's sort of hammering the royal family his dad his brothers on every angle and um, it looks to be like a like a ratings goose you know like he's trying to to uh, and and. And then, I, and then he has the sort of the temerity to say, on the other hand, but I still love my family, and I want to repair relations, and I want to, you know. So, I, he's playing he's playing a funny game, and I think, um, you know, af, after the initial sort of shock value, I, I, I think people are going to turn on him and Megan, and and just, you know, say we've had enough. You know, that's all you got. You know, say your piece, and then. I think they're they're going to sort of feed. Yeah. yeah, I wonder, Bill. You know, when you think about relationships that we all have with close family members—fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, children—you uh, wonder how will Harry's conversations with various reporters and ultimately this book? How will it play out? Most importantly, with King Charles, his dad. I think it. I think the the worry certainly is he has not established himself uh, uh, in in uh, many people's views with the trust that he is really able to carry out the the role in the same way that his mother that his mother did. And this is just this is just another arrow aimed at his uh, at his heart when it comes to uh, uh, trying to fulfill that uh, role and i i think this will increase the difficulty uh, uh, he doesn't have the, the he doesn't have the the interest remember when as you know as david was talking back when when some of us first became conscious of royalty it's when we had the young princesses and we were so eager to know more about them and watch them grow up and mm-hmm. very positive attitude uh, about them uh, right until Elizabeth uh, became queen. Uh, Charles did not have the same kind of good fortune. He had a rocky road right up until he became uh, king, and he's got a, lot, a much larger boulder to jump even than his mother did. Well, everybody has an opinion about Harry, and uh, the phone lines are starting to fill up. You want to get in on this conversation as well. It really is hard to avoid the whole Prince Harry and uh, and Meghan story at this time in history. 416-360-0740 or one 740 Johnny from Peterborough. Hi, what would you like to add? I think the Canadians should get wised up and stop with this nonsense we're deluged with day after day, a radio or TV. Who cares? But what what These are your are thoughts of letters, yeah. Johnny? What are your thoughts about uh, the late Queen Elizabeth and how Queen Elizabeth, God rest her, was in stuck in a gang that she didn't want. And as for that husband of hers. Canadians should rise up. That guy was a lecher. He was fact. Now, we do not need this. And, and, and daily, I have no idea why. None. I cannot grasp it with Canadians, Americans, about Harry. Who cares? Do okay. these people actually ever do a day's work? Okay, we, we take your point, Johnny. Um, a lot of people might say that, David, that the last uh, civilized, um, sophisticated individual uh, in the royal family was the queen herself. Well, I think, I don't even know if that's true, because we're only dealing with image. But one thing I would point out is that the monarch has always had... I'm the monarch, but I'm also the mother in the case of the queen. And imagine living in a family where you can go into the room and hug your mother and say, hi, mom. And then you have to step back and bow your head or curtsy to your own mom, which they do. And now they have to do with King Charles. So Mm -hmm. Charles has to wear, well, as the king, what do I feel about what Harry's doing and saying and how it impacts the monarchy? And then as his father... What do I feel about this? And I think that's a very tough dichotomy, psychologically and operationally. And she played it brilliantly. The Queen handled it brilliantly. She did. Brilliantly. I think even it'll... during her Annus Oribilis, right? Completely. Yeah. And if you look at you know where she 
started and where she ended, just keeping up with social changes. She she played it masterfully, uh, I think sincerely. But and I think Charles is going to be challenged to do the same, not because necessarily of deficiencies on his part, but just the environment. Okay, back to the phones, Doreen in Kingston. Your um, thoughts on Prince Harry. Was that Doreen in Kingston? I wasn't, didn't get it. That's you. Yep, you're on the air. Okay. Well, I admire, I love Harry, and I think it's a shame when they blame, um, um, oh gosh, his wife for taking him out because in my eyes and what I read, she rescued him because the boy was never happy. Uh, look at him, the pain, emotional pain he was in when his mom died and they had to look so staunch and not let their emotions come out in tears. He's been damaged by that, but God love him, and God love his wife for taking him out of a situation, a lifestyle that he was not happy with. Um, So uh, I love and admire him for doing that, and I think the probably, in my guess, would be the only people who are against him for, for shedding light on what it's really like to live in the royalty, I never understood their purpose to begin with, uh, but I did say God save the Queen. I admired uh, Queen Elizabeth, but I will never say God save the King as long as Charles is there. Interesting. Because I don't think he treated his wife right. He didn't treat his boys right. He wasn't uh, a loving, uh, nurturing father. And it, he showed the real side of human beings within the royal family. Yeah. And. We did not know what it was like behind the scenes um, because there was no media. But now that it's all coming out, I mean, we can see that there's uh, soap operas in the royal family all all the way along. Doreen, yeah, thank you very much for your call. Really appreciate uh, your perspective. Uh, Peter, I mean, it seemed like, I don't know if you watched the 60 Minutes interview last night, uh, but it seems as though... Harry is not just defending himself and his wife, but also his late mother and her legacy. Mm-hmm. He, uh, you know, to Doreen's point, he did struggle. He said with drugs, uh, cocaine in the pubs, drinking too much all the time, and that Megan saved his life. You know, they gave him a life mm-hmm. effectively. Uh, yeah, and but but does that mean he has to sort of? Um you know, you slam the family on the way out. Uh, I, I think that's what, what a lot of readers are, are most concerned about. But we do have a, a lot like um, Doreen, who uh, loved loved Harry and loved Megan and loved the whole, you know, love the fact that they're speaking out on something that's never, you know, it, it's been taboo to, to sort of pull back the curtain on that family. So, yeah. um, you know, it, it's a split audience, but it, it, it certainly... Uh, both sides are charged if Johnny is at any indication. <laughs> right. And the callers are phoning in, so people yeah. do have an opinion, including Sally in Etobicoke. Uh, what are your thoughts on Prince Harry? Hi, Jean. Uh, my thoughts are really disappointing. He has not only uh, betrayed his uh, family, but he has also betrayed his mother's legacy. She is deceased, and this is what he comes out with, little, uh, you know, tattletale on his brothers and his family. Oh, look, I'm the injured one. It's really sad, and he needs to grow up and uh, take ownership. But I, I do sort of question his drinking, I do believe, but his heroin, I don't believe no, too much cocaine. on the drug part. Cocaine. Because that yeah. would have been out in the open in the uh, in the um, UK newspaper. Well, it was. It, it was his his lifestyle and how he was acting and that he was a bad boy. So that that was all part of the narrative around Harry. And obviously some of it was true. We do need to switch topics here. But boy, <laughs> juicy, juicy. <laughs> uh, any final thoughts, Bill, before we move on? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. I think I think the callers have summed summed it up very well. David, I agree with you. All right. All right. Let's uh, let's talk about something more serious. Alzheimer's Awareness Month. January is Alzheimer's Awareness Month, and among the related topics associated with Alzheimer's is how to tell a relative with dementia they need to stop driving. And Bill, you've brought to our attention that this has been on the radar of CARP members for many years with no government guidelines or other solutions offered. 
Well, that's right. Uh, it, it's such a divisive issue that uh, I think it's 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 not acceptable, but easy to understand why governments have uh, shied away from making any uh, any pronouncements. And so has the the, the uh, medical uh, profession in most areas of uh, medical uh, judgment. There are guidelines that are issued uh, nationally uh, that all physicians can can follow, and there are no still no guidelines uh, at this point on this issue but but uh, steps are being uh, are being uh, taken now it's good to see this coming up to the the fore again and because this is this is continually a problem i hear from families all the time who are concerned about their uh, their parents and and driving and sometimes it would appear to be strictly ageism uh, because uh, uh, mom is such and such an age she shouldn't be driving any more with no uh, concern about uh, real abilities and other is that they're observing uh, driving practices that really scare them and and uh, worry them uh, but uh, understanding that taking away a driver's license from uh, an individual is one of the worst things you can do for most uh, older people. When uh, when we uh, when we begin driving at the age of sixteen or whatever it is in our in our province, that's kind of our our step into adulthood. When we we agree that that uh, now you are an adult, taking away your license at the other end really signals you've had it, you're done for, you're not worth anything uh, anymore, we're taking away your your freedom and your ability to get around. So it's an extremely important uh, uh, topic, and I'm glad to see that there are some groups uh, beginning to push again for more organized support for families who are concerned about this issue. Oh, so David, how necessary do you think guidelines are in this equation, and should the guidelines be developed in tandem with medical organizations? Organizations, how should that work? Well, I think they have to be because uh, what's elusive here, what's very difficult here with dementia leading into Alzheimer's is that you're dealing with a continuum. If it's purely physical, you're dealing with eyesight, you're dealing with eye-hand coordination, you're dealing with reaction time, you're dealing with the inability to turn around and see what's behind you. If there's physical constraints that that impair your ability to physically drive, it's a little bit easier to at least be objective or to fall back on an objective. Here's the objective standards we have. And by the way, this individual who may not have any sign of dementia, but he's or she is a certain age or whatever it is. But dementia leading into Alzheimer's, the continue, it's a continuum. So where are they at this moment? And what is it about dementia or Alzheimer's, that is impairing their ability to drive. And that also speaks to where do they normally drive? Are they just puttering around the neighborhood, going to the local mall and back again? Do you take away perhaps the right to drive on the highway? There's there's a graded licensing system already to some extent. And I think the other thing we're going to be moving toward, and I think this is going to happen with increased longevity, where a 65-year-old could be looking at 25, 30 years to go on. I'm speaking to Bill's point about entering adulthood versus give me your license, this is it. Mm-hmm. What are the alternatives? Is it taxi? Is it a chauffeur? Is it a, a one day a week some relative drives mom or dad to wherever it is so that mobility and driver's license aren't necessarily the same thing. So what are you doing to help their mobility and their independence I've decided I want to go to from A to B. Can I do it without being the driver of the car? These solutions are just emerging. They're not there yet. But the wider we can make the discussion and the more components we can put in there, then I think that's how we're going to solve it. I'm wondering, and I'm putting this to you, the Zoomer radio listener, if you have had to deal with this in your life and if you have any recommendations, if a loved one, uh, you had to transition from driving away from driving, either because of dementia or 
or concerns around ability later in life. It would certainly be helpful uh, for this discussion. Numbers to call are 416-360-0740 or 1-866-744-740. Regardless, Peter, it's all about sensitivity, isn't it? When dealing with the recipient of this bad news. Absolutely. Because as Bill said, they've been driving most of their lives. It's it's freedom. It, it's, you know, um, you know, you can go where you want to go, when you want to go at your own um, beck and call. And, um, you know, waiting for buses or cabs or, or someone to drive you is not, you know, anywhere near uh, the freedom you get no. from, from being on the road your own. But the, um, but the problem is, is that... Um, you know, these people um, who who are, are sort of aging out of their licenses and, and losing the ability to drive, you often can't notice it um, by a test or by eyes. You know, it's often their their decision making at a moment of stress on the road. And how do you test for that? You know, like like how do you like my father? I remember he just froze on the road and and stopped you know, on, on the QE and. Um, Were you in the car with him? I was him? in the car with him, yeah. And it was just like, he didn't have dementia, but it was just he was no longer able to make that sort of, he, he was overwhelmed and he couldn't make a, a snap decision. And that's when he knew he should just stick to the city. You know, like the, the highway was no longer it for him. But how do you test for that? And and, that, and that's a big problem with uh, with many seniors who find, you know, uh, I can drive, I can make these decisions, but I can't turn my head to see what's behind me. So, like... It, you know, they're, they're being judged on, on a, people are being judged on a set of standards that may not apply to them. Right. And I wonder, Bill, uh, how many people like Peter's dad came, come to the decision themselves about how much or how little they should be driving. Oh, I think we know that uh, that a lot of people uh, uh, do. That's not at all un- unusual to hear that happen. But generally, that's when they have an easy uh, solution to uh, to, to being uh, immobile, not being able. They they have a spouse who can still drive. They live with family members who will look after them. So it's an, an easier decision mm-hmm. uh, for them. The harder decision is for those people who live on their own, uh, who often are in rural areas yeah. where there are there's not public transportation available to them easily, will mean they'll be uh, totally uh, housebound, and they're really concerned and and should be that this is going to have a real impact on their their emotional well-being and their and their health when they can't get around to the things to help them look after themselves. So uh, there's a there's a, a huge difference between those two groups of people. Margaret uh, is calling in to offer her thoughts on this topic. Uh, Margaret, go ahead. Thanks for calling. Hi, Jane. Um, Okay, first of all, I I myself am a blind person, so I've never been able to drive. But um, my late husband used to drive, and uh, he used to do it professionally and personally. And what we wound up having to do with him is um, I had to get uh, the family doctor and one of his brothers to sit down and explain to him, like, why his license was being taken away and and how it was just basically going to take some stress off of him because the traffic was getting so bad. It was a little hard for him to adjust. um, And he said, well, what about Margaret getting around? And I said, well, I've got wheel trans. And, you know, we we started taking wheel trans to different places. It's not the best situation, um, and it is an adjustment, but I, you know, we, we, we managed uh, to, to work, make it work. Oh, well, thank you. Thanks for uh, your story. appreciate it. Uh, David, um, that's probably the best way to go in the absence of guidelines is to take it to a family doctor. Well, I think so, because the, I mentioned continuum before, spectrum before, and the doctor has seen most cases what was, what is, what will be. There's a kind of a, a flow there where they can explain, uh, you know, what what's going on. And the uh, driver-to-be or the driver who's about to lose their license knows, has a relationship presumably with that physician and can accept this. And I think most people uh, can accept if there's a physical uh, uh, reason. You know, Peter's example is very dramatic. Mm-hmm. It was unconnected to dementia, but it's very absolute. Oh, my God, here I am on the Queenie, and I'm... But when you get into dementia uh, and Alzheimer's, 
uh, you've got two things. You've got the spectrum of losing your driving ability. You've got the spectrum of creeping dementia. Also, and how do you how do you bring those two together? And it's very very tricky. I don't think it's an easy thing at all. Uh, Bill, there is a tool in that information you sent us this morning. Yeah. Uh, information about a tool to help people make decisions about ending their driving careers. Can you speak to that? Yes, it is an excellent uh, tool, and uh, uh, it's been uh, prepared by uh, experts from the University of uh, Toronto, uh, a very comprehensive document that will help families uh, move through this, and it's called drivinganddementia.ca. So very easy to remember, just drivinganddementia.ca, and they can uh, find this. And it gives a number of uh, of uh, both outlining the problem and solutions and guidance uh, for families, for caregivers, uh, for professionals, and others when it's dealing with this, uh, this issue. And one of the things that I like about it uh, most is it understands that uh, some of the solutions that uh, uh, that people think about should work uh, just aren't practical for a lot of our, po- our older population. Uh, the first being, as David mentioned, uh, getting uh, your doctor involved. Well, uh, almost half of the people across the country don't have a family doctor at the moment. And those that do, we're told at CARP uh, continually by, by physicians that they often don't want to be in the position of having to tell the patient that uh, they're, they're going to have to recommend that their license be removed because then the patient won't trust them, won't like them, will be angry with them, and won't listen to them when it comes to advice on all their other health issues so for that reason, the physicians don't want to, to have that interaction with them. All right. We will leave it there for this week. Our Zoomer squad, uh, thank you all for your comments on today's hot topics. Thanks so much. Thanks, Bye, everyone. Bill Van Gorder is Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer of CARP. David Kravitz is Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. And Peter Mugridge is Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. It is Jane for Libby. And coming up in the second half of Fight Back, a discussion about ways to make Toronto safer without hiring 200 more police officers. That's next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is off today. She is hoping to be back tomorrow. Well, you've heard Mayor John Tory's explanation. Toronto needs 200 more police officers to make the city safe because he says people are extremely anxious about violent crime. Let me ask you this before we bring in our guest. Are you extremely anxious about violent crime in Toronto and why? 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. These 200 additional officers will be hired at an extra cost of $48 million should the proposal go forward or a 4.3% increase to the police budget. The push for more officer resources is at odds with critics' calls to defund police in favor of redirecting money to community initiatives that aim to address root causes of violence. In fact, in a written deputation to today's Police Services Board meeting, not-for-profit community legal clinic Black Legal Action Center says it is extremely concerned by the proposal, arguing the increase in police officers will negatively impact black communities and further strain their relationship with Toronto police. For his perspective on the story and this similar perspective, we are joined by Desmond Cole, journalist, broadcaster, activist, and author. He is also a black man living in Toronto. Desmond, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Understanding you are not with Black Legal Action Center, but uh, summarize, if you could, and I have the letter here as well, the reasoning behind the Black Legal Action Center's counter-argument to hiring 200 more officers to make the city safe. Well, um, Black Legal Action Center is just one of uh, any number of community organizations who have been mobilizing over the last many years. And 
just talking about what actually makes a city a safe place. Um, Toronto is the most policed city in Canada already. And so if the logic was that policing keeps people safe, Toronto would already be the safest city in the world. All of the American cities that are teeming with police officers and canine units and tanks and all of these kind of paramilitary vehicles, those would be the safest places in the world. And yet people are feeling and being the least safe in those places. So simply increasing the police budget and putting more officers who are, by the way, reacting to crime, they're not present when crime happens, this is not the solution. But, of course, Black Legal Action Center is also pointing out that police have disproportionately targeted black communities, and I would add indigenous communities. So we're much less safe every time more police officers are deployed. Right. I like that line that these 200 officers typically are reacting to crime rather than preventing crime. Um, and, and to your point, it was not that long ago, it was within the last year that then Chief Raymer apologized to black communities for a dispor- disproportionate use of violence by police officers against black and indigenous people. So other than offering that apology, several Several months ago, what has changed? That's a great question for the police, and that's why I'm at police headquarters today at this police services board meeting, speaking out against this with hundreds of other Torontonians, because the so-called apology was lip service. Nothing has changed. Uh, James Raymer said that it was going to be a difficult time for his officers when those statistics showing disproportionate use of force against black people, disproportionate strip searching, disproportionate shootings and killings, which we've already known about. Raymer had an internal memo leaked where he said to his boys, hey, this is going to be a really hard time for us. That's what that apology was about. It was about apologizing to the police service for having to embarrass them through statistical data. But the data didn't actually prompt the police to do anything. Everybody knows about their racist history. If you didn't believe it before, now you can read their own data. But they want to be rewarded after presenting that data about their racism uh, from the public. Yeah, and I think, Desmond, I think more white people in the city are starting to get it. We're starting to hear uh, and see the evidence and understand, not obviously from a personal perspective, but at least empathize with what is going on uh, among people who are racialized, who are black, indigenous, and also living in poverty. I think we're starting to get it. Well, I'm glad you mentioned poverty as well, because this is a class issue um, as much as it is a racial issue. And so um, a lot of the uh, people who are living in poverty in the city of Toronto, who are living in encampments, who are sleeping in doorways, who are being swept up by police raids, only to be tossed right back out into the street again, they're white. Uh, but they happen to be extremely low-income right. white people. And so in all of our communities where we see people struggling with poverty, struggling with mental health issues, with addiction, with being able to ha- uh, hang on to a steady job, I mean, a lot of people have lost their jobs over the last couple of years of the pandemic. Everywhere that you see that social outcome, you also see more policing. We have seen two deputations so far out of about, I'd say, a dozen this morning at Police Services Board, and all of them have been about defunding the police, save for two. The two people who have spoken in favor of this police increase are business improvement associations, the very organizations that pay so that you don't have to see homelessness. You can come and be a tourist and go shopping in Toronto and don't have to worry about seeing homeless people. John Tory himself said that he consulted with the business community, didn't he? So it's a very clear class divide in this city that is pitting those who are privileged enough to not want to look at homelessness and poverty and dysfunction against those who are actually living it. I'm speaking with Desmond Cole. It's Jane for Libby here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Let's go to the phones and the numbers to call. How to make the city safer uh, is our question. 416-360-0740 or 1-866-740-4740. Jody in Toronto, what would you like to add? Hi, Jane. Thank you for taking my call. A few years ago, your program had a program on crime in Toronto, and they said that uh, while the black community makes up about 9% of our population, 
the crime in Toronto, 80% of it is committed by people of color. Now, they should have qualified that a little bit better because it's not the whole community. Our black community is educated. They're hardworking people just like everyone else. But there is a small segment in the black community that are causing all these problems. And we keep saying we want to get down to the root cause, the root cause of poverty and so on. Over my 30 years of working with charitable organizations and going into some of these homes, I see the same thing over and over and over again. A woman who cannot provide for herself, she's on social assistance, will go on and have four, five, six, seven children. These kids are just slated to, into poverty and they're slated to fail. What is Black Lives matter doing in that respect helping these people if you want to get to the root cause of things okay all right jody thank you for calling in with your question how do you respond to that desmond that's such an unfortunate call and i think a lot of people who are listening know why i would immediately characterize it like that what what i'd like to say to that comment which we hear all the time is this When you decide that you're going to criminalize a community, everything that they do is a crime. When you decide that you're going to start following our children home from school and asking them about being involved in gang activity when they're children, when you decide that you're going to arrest our children when you assault them as the police, when you push them around, when they decide not to answer your questions, when you put police officers in school for a decade, as we did in Toronto, and then expulsions and suspensions for black children follow that trend of increased police presence and police increased criminalization, you're deciding that the black community is criminal. You're putting our kids into the system before they even have a chance to graduate. So that's what I would say to that individual, is that when you want to look at the criminality in the black community, you're going to find it. Um, All of this arresting people and putting them in jail is not doing anything to solve everybody's anxieties about crime. And this is what I find fascinating about John Tory is that when a crime occurs, John Tory complains that there's not enough uh, strict bail and people are being let out too easily, which, by the way, is false. But then John Tory will also, out of the other side of his mouth, say, well, there aren't enough programs for people in jail to rehabilitate themselves. Well, when you're vilifying people who are incarcerated and saying that it's them who are causing all the dysfunction, why would you pay for services to support them? Of course, jail is going to look like it does, which is horrible and a disgusting and violent place itself. And of course, the people who go there are going to come out worse than they went in. But when you only care about hurting and punishing and pointing the finger at people, it doesn't matter to you if what you're doing is actually counterproductive. You just want to see somebody pay the price. And I think your last caller focusing on, like, you know, what are we in the 1950s talking about tropes of, like, black single mothers? Yeah. Because there aren't white single mothers in, 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 in Ontario and in Canada? Of course like, there are. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't even need to really respond to that part of it because it's so sure. evident that if you want to look for criminalization of the community, you will find it. So let's talk about what needs to be done in in, uh, in contrast to these 200 officers, which it's going to happen, um, especially now with the strong mayor powers. Although, you know what, hopefully, uh, you know, I think reason could at least spark more debate uh, before this ends up happening. But in terms of redirecting that $48 to community initiatives, that aim to address root causes of violence. Desmond, how much good could that do? Well, the $48 million is just the increase. The police right. already have $1.2 billion in their budget. Right. So we have to actually look at the totality of what's happening True. and have to look at how much more dysfunction they cause when they're out in the streets criminalizing people for no reason. Um, it's really, really simple. No one can propose a solution that is going to stop all crime. However, we've seen huge mobilizations in the last couple of years to do things like sweep homeless people out of public parks. That money could be used for housing. We've seen years of investing in police to respond to our schools, and our schools have been having an increase in violence since COVID as well. But then the schools don't have educational assistance. The schools don't have custodial staff. The schools don't have public health nurses. I'm not saying that those things will put an end. There will be zero crime after we do them. But the only way to actually attack these issues is to invest in people. The police are, by their definition, Jane, I'm going to say it again, they're reactive. By the time they're here, 
it is too late. However, a lot of people who don't actually care about outcomes of safety, they feel safer when the men with the gun are around. And they are only advocating for their feelings of safety, not for actual safety. If we lived in a city where more people could afford the rent, instead of paying police to go and violently evict them, we would be getting somewhere. If we lived in a city where you had full student nutrition funding so that kids who are, I don't know, the sixth out of six in a family of a lot of kids and the mom is struggling, maybe if we had some meal programs at school, it would be a little easier for those kids to learn in the morning when they go to school. But you can spend all the money you want reacting and feeling safe in the glow of police power. It's not going to change anything. The mayor knows that, but he he has to kind of, um, he has to present his agenda and he has to be loyal to the police as he's been for the nine years that he's been here. Well, it's worth, I mean, from a taxpayer's perspective, isn't it worth trying something that hasn't been tried before rather than the same old, which clearly is not working? Well, I think that the issue is that Mayor Tory is actually quite beholden to police power. Remember, he was on the board for the first eight years that he was mayor, and critically, people have missed this point. Mayor Tory is no longer on the police board, and yet he's the one last week who came and announced the increase. Why is he announcing the increase for a board that hasn't even sat and deliberated yet when he's not on it anymore? This is not about public safety. It's not about evidence-based. It's coming from a mayor who's carrying water for the police union and for his friends. Doug Ford is doing the same thing provincially. Okay, let's so, go to the let's go to the phones uh, before we get your final comments, Desmond. Sure. Randy in Brampton. Hi, you're on Fightback. Go ahead. Yes, hi. I, I just pointing out to your screener uh, in Portugal, they legalized all drugs, and the economy collapsed because you need drug crime to create employment for police officers and judges and lawyers and uh, taxi drivers. If nobody's going to court, you don't need taxi drivers. If you've got a grocery store and you're across the street from the courthouse, you need that drug crime to keep create the walk-in business for you. Otherwise, there's no point in being located near the courthouse. Okay, Randy, thank you for that call. Is that an extreme point of view, Desmond? I can imagine other ways that people might spur the economy than visiting the local grocery store outside of the courthouse. If you make a city walkable and have places that people actually want to go and be, if you let people hang out in the park instead of criminalizing it, people are going to socialize. If people have jobs and have a strong economy, they have money to spend. But the caller is correct. Policing is not an economy. Courts are not an economy. If you take the money through court systems policing, and jail. We spend a lot of money on black and indigenous people in this country, you know, but it's in those three places, the courthouse, the jailhouse, and the police. And I want to live in a country where we can spend billions of dollars on black and indigenous people's well-being instead of their criminalization after the fact. All right, we will leave it there. Desmond, always fascinating to hear your perspective. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure, Jane. Thank you. Desmond Cole is a journalist, broadcaster, activist, and author. And uh, occasionally we have him as a visitor here on Fight Back as well. It is Jane for Libby. And uh, still to come, we've got so much more to talk about, including this brand new subvariant, the new COVID-19 subvariant. What's known about it? How best to protect ourselves against it? We discuss with two experts next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. It's been detected in Canada, three provinces, B.C., Nova Scotia and Newfoundland. The XBB15 subvariant of COVID-19 is here. Or is that XXB? Jeremy, have I got it right? <laughs> X, oh, XBB, right, okay. Uh, will it become dominant as it has in the United States? And how can we protect ourselves against it? Uh, joining us to discuss, epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Toronto Metropolitan University, and Dr. Alon Vaisman, epidemiologist and infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network. Welcome to you both. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. Dr. Sly, Tim, tell us about this new variant. 
Yeah, we should avoid the use of this uh, mythological sort of monster epithet that's been called. It's a member of the uh, of the coronavirus family, so it doesn't differ very much from the uh, XBB and uh, uh, that the evolved from. It's a it's a recombinant one. So in other words, it's it's got some characteristics of the old BA2. Uh, we haven't heard from for a little bit, and it probably will take over the BA5 that's uh, been dominant for a while. Okay, well, and that that is good to know. Um, is it, will it, I guess, Dr. Vaisman, become the most dominant version? Is that a prediction that could be made at this point? Uh, it, it probably will. It, it may not make too much of a difference. We should anticipate that whether it's this or the next Omicron variant, that we're just going to have successive mutations in Omicron variations, and we're going to have newer variants. That seems to be the case over the last 13 months since Omicron first arrived in around November, December of 2020-2021. So that's just going to be the natural history of COVID. It's going to constantly mutate. We're going to have new variants. The bottom line is that this is a COVID, this is an Omicron variant, which means that it likely has similar properties, likely uh, vaccination and previous infection, likely give you some immunity against this. So I don't think there's much to uh, publicize about this variant. It's not much different than anything we've experienced before. Ah, that's good to know. Okay. Uh, and if you have any questions for Dr. Vaisman or Dr. Sly, uh, while we're talking COVID here for a few minutes, please give us a call, 416-360-0740 or one 740 Dr. Sly, you said it is similar to the BA2. How infectious is it? Well, it seems to remember what a virus is programmed to do is to make more virus. That's that's what its purpose is. It's like a little drone, a little robot, and so there are there are variants that are being produced all the time, but only those that are successful in transmitting a little more successfully than the ones that the other ones are around move into this into the headlight, into the spotlight. Uh, and this is what this one's doing. Remember that uh, it's got nothing to do with how how dangerous it is or how lethal it is. And fortunately, fortunately, from this, even from the very beginning, this thing has had a a case fatality rate of less than one percent, probably about 0.7 if you actually do the calculation. And that doesn't seem to change at all. The fact is, though, if you have a large population and the virus does spread very widely and and extensively, you will see more cases. And ultimately, you will see more deaths on the end of that, simply because the population is larger. But there's nothing to be worried about. This is not a a, a dreaded, evil uh, monster coming up your street. This is much the same as the other Omicron group. And the solution is to make sure your vaccine's up to date. If you haven't had a booster shot since about August, then you're due for one. And make sure you get the bivalent. How well, Dr. Vaisman, do the current bivalent vaccines protect against uh, this new variant, subvariant? We don't know exactly because this is a very new variant, but if it's similar to other Omicron variants that we've experienced the last 12 months, it should provide some degree of protection. And the main thing that vaccines are supposed to be given for now, the main reason we should be taking it, is really for the high-risk individuals to prevent them from having a poor outcome like hospitalization and death. The prevention against transmission of infection or picking up mild infection, it's not likely to be very good like the previous Omicron variants and the previous vaccines we have. It maybe lasts three months at most. So really the high-risk individuals, those who are elderly over the age of 65 particularly, and uh, people who are immunocompromised should be encouraged to be updated with their vaccines. But just as Dr. Sly said, this this is going to be the way of the future. We're going to have more and more variants like this. And the mortality, if anything, has continued to fall over the last 12 months Mm -hmm. associated with COVID. So in some ways, it's good news. The overall story, unfortunately, because it's so transmissible, many people are picking up COVID, but the case fatality rate continues to be very low and and dropping. But the people who did die, Dr. Vaisman, over the last year are the ones who hadn't had the first two vaccines or hadn't had any of the vaccine, right? Unfortunately, people who are still fully vaccinated can die. It's just that their risk is lowered by vaccination. Certainly the unvaccinated are more likely to die from COVID than the unvaccinated as a proportion. But uh, as with all respiratory viruses, unfortunately, some people who are still vaccinated can die, for example, from flu. So we still encourage vaccination because it reduces the chances of dying. Uh, Dr. Sly, you were talking about the, the little drone that, uh, are, that is this subvariant. Um, at what point does the 
does a subvariant of COVID, of Omicron, become so frustrated because it cannot penetrate the society because, say, of a high vaccination rate or a high masking rate? Will it ultimately die out? How does that work? Well, if, if a particular strain doesn't uh, successfully uh, transmit uh, as effectively as, as existing strains around, if the existing strain doesn't uh, do that, then we just don't even hear of it. I mean, there probably are, are countless numbers of variants being produced all the time through mutations, but we just don't hear of them. Some of them don't cause the virus to replicate at all. Some mean that it replicates, but even slower, and we don't even hear about those. We only hear about the ones that move a little more rapidly, and so far, this one has moved uh, probably very close to measles in terms of how rapidly it transmits. Uh, It's among the most uh, transmissible viruses known to mankind. And what do you think, Dr. Vaisman, public health experts, epidemiologists uh, like yourselves, what are you learning to discourage its transmission? Are we talking solely about vaccines or should we be thinking still about masking? You know, obviously we're seeing less and less of that as time goes on. Yes, it's generally the same principles that have been protecting us for the last two, three years now with COVID and other respiratory viruses. Uh, Certainly vaccination is the most important masking in certainly in confined quarters or when there's high degrees of activity in certain settings. Um, Hand hygiene to some degree also has some effect, but much less so than for other viruses. Distancing wherever it's necessary. So it's generally the same principles, but more and more we're seeing COVID transmission occurring across the entire population. So it's important to think about COVID as something, unfortunately, that to some degree is inevitable. People are going to pick it up if you haven't already in the last three years. The most important thing we could do is reduce its morbidity i.e. with vaccination, access to early therapeutics if you pick up the virus as well. Okay, we're just about at the point where we need final comments. We've been talking about the XBB15 subvariant of Omicron of the COVID virus and how it is just starting to make itself known here in Canada in three different provinces. I talked to both of you not that long ago, uh, your thoughts on the pandemic and, and whether it would be officially declared over in 2020. And I think you were both leaning towards that thought. What about this winter here in Ontario? Are we, do you think, Dr. Sly, through the worst of it? A little early to say. Uh, Encouraging is that we are currently uh, a a little lower than we were last year. Last year, remember, in January, we went through a very large spike. We're not seeing that, nor are we expecting to see that spike. There will be a surge because of post post festivities and people throwing their masks away. But as Dr. Weissman said, uh, carry on those same precautionary measures and wear the masks, protect yourself, and especially protect the public as well, the, the other people around you, and make sure your vaccine's up to date, and we'll get through this. We'll be into an endemic form of this uh, rather than the pandemic. Dr. Vaisman, uh, your thoughts on where we're at in the, the winter season? Yeah, overall, uh, I agree. We're not as bad as we thought we were. In terms of the flu activity, actually, this, this seems the spike actually occurred in late November, early December, which is more than a month before we actually anticipate it. Normally, it should be now approximately where we normally see a flu spike in adults, for example, but we're not seeing that. And in terms of COVID, we're seeing kind of month-to-month undulation up and down, but nowhere near the severity that we saw in January of 2022. So all things considered, uh, in terms of it being a winter season, things are right now not as bad as they were expected to be. Doctors, thank you again for your time. Uh, We'll be calling on you again soon, I'm sure. Thank you, Jane. Stay safe. You too. Thank you. Dr. Alan Vaisman is an epidemiologist and infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network. And Dr. Tim Sly is a professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Toronto Metropolitan University. It's Jane for Libby, Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, the number ones at one, coming up next on Zoomer Radio right after Bob Comsick and the news. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.